Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuha. The Tamson and Dan read the paper on Sunday, May 17th, 2020. Okay. Uh, nice day. Nice weekend. Surprisingly, kudos to the weather for the weekend, don't you think? Yes. It's uh, really Beautiful. warm yesterday and 70 today, and today's the weakest day. So it's uh, great. Great to be outside. Yeah, many, many people out. Yes. And uh, lots of good scenery. Oh, beautiful. All right. So uh, as for uh, the week, uh, sheltering indoors, uh, not really. But uh, let's say we were sheltering indoors. Uh, Sheltering in place? Yeah, sheltering in place. I knew it was something like that. So we we saw... Staying at home? We we saw, with the help of advice of uh, Granger and Nico, we saw a comedy special, uh, John Mulaney. Uh, called Kid Gorgeous. John Mulaney being a um, reasonably well-known, I'd say well-known comedian. Uh, He's got uh, three different uh, stand-up specials available on Netflix. This one took place at Radio City Music Hall. Uh, And um, it's funny. Uh, You mean it's funny? Or it's funny? It was funny. Well, let let me just say this. Let me just make this one intro comment. I'm going to ask you what you thought, although I think I know. Um, he used to call himself in kind of a self-deprecating way, sort of a Seinfeld ripoff. And uh, his comedy has been described similarly to Seinfeld's as showing the humor that lies in the strangeness of everyday life. That's a quote from a critic. And he talks about things like his marriage, his childhood, celebrity, politics, and that sort of thing. Um, what do you think? Oh, I thought it was funny. Yeah, it was funny. I thought it was. So, but what's good. your point about the sign? Well, I'm going to get to that in a spe- Well, let me just make one other point. We're not the only ones who thought it was funny. It won the Emmy in 2018 for Best Written Variety Special, and he's, he's, he's doing quite well. Uh, and my point is, uh, I can't help but contrast or at least compare it with the Seinfeld performance that we saw just the week before, his comedy special, um, which we didn't love, which we didn't think was great. And what's interesting to me was. They were covering similar, similar subject matter. And it was a similar take on how we call it the strangeness of American life, everyday life. Um, and some real obvious parallels. And yet, uh, I agree with you. I think the Mulaney stuff was funny. And the Seinfeld stuff was just a little short of that. I mean, was that your take also? <laughs> you know, you're not... you. You're really just uh, twisting what? the knife. I'm not twisting the knife. Uh, aren't I'm you? Poor, poor Seinfeld. You can't poor say Jerry. Poor. There's no such thing as poor Jerry. You can't let go poor, of just how boring I'm, that was. I'm just trying to figure it out. I'm trying <laughs> to figure it out. Well, let me go back to Milady. Milady was hilarious. I, yeah. It was very good. And, uh, I, you know, it was shocking how um, much more fun it was to listen to. Than the Seinfeld. Yeah, and why uh, is that? Was it the pacing? Was it his uh, the con- obviously it was the content? I don't know because it's a combination. The delivery things. was similar. I mean, they're both shouters. Yeah, you know, there's um, a lot of similarities. Yeah, there? so I I don't know. It's a generational difference. There's no question. Here's something that I, I looked up that I found interesting. So I would. So uh, John Mulaney refers to his father, I think, as a lawyer at some point in, in the show. His father's a big firm lawyer, like I'm a big firm lawyer. Just right. a few years older than we are. Okay. Skadden Arps of all places in right. Chicago. Yeah. You know? And uh, so Mulaney, that's the Mulaney's talking about, a person who I, I know a thousand people like that. Right. Some might even say I'm in that category. Who even knows? 
And uh, Mulaney's a guy who's had some issues. Mulaney uh, had real drug and alcohol issues. Mm -hmm. uh, even at this young age, he's been to rehab and he sort of put it behind him. But, uh, you know, he, he looks like, a, like an altar boy, everyone says in every review. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's something going on there. Uh, but he was, oh, I should tell you that his wife, who refers to his woman named Anne-Marie Tendler, and what she does, she designs Victorian lampshades. <laughs> uh, All right. So she, uh, she has her niche. Yes, as does he. Look, uh, we recommend it. It's called Kid Gorgeous. He's got other specials uh, that are available on Netflix also. And uh, what can I say? Enjoy I would it. just say that it was interesting that, I mean, Seinfeld is our generation. Right. We're almost exactly that age. Yeah. Okay. And yet we found Mulaney much funnier. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And they're both talking about their own context, their frame of reference. Yeah. And clearly, I mean, we talked about this last week, I think, that Seinfeld was, um, you know, crafting his jokes, it seemed like, for our demographic. Yeah. It was not stuff that would appeal to a kid. Right. So to speak, and yet it didn't really. Um, fly. And yet, somehow, we could relate to yeah. uh, the Mulaney humor much more. Yeah, I think. My... I mean, it really. One of the things that makes something funny is that it takes you by surprise. Right. That it turns a corner you're not expecting. Yeah. And uh, there was much more of that in the Mulaney than in the Seinfeld. But you know what? I also, I think it was. I think, uh, and this might be an age thing too, or just Seinfeld can't get away with who he is. There was a, a certain vulnerability, a certain self-deprecating quality about Mulaney and his stories that was able to draw you in more, that made him more identifiable and more sympathetic. And Seinfeld is so above it all, and he just can't relate it to people in that way. And I think that's another thing that Mulaney has going from him, which is generationally related. Yeah, uh, that's that. That sort of is a barrier for Seinfeld at this point. He's just not a man of the people. Mm -hmm. And Mulaney, they're both telling stories. That, Isn't American life kind of funny? Well, what American life is Jerry Seinfeld living? Okay. Uh, right. So anyway, we recommend. But, but there were many similarities, as yeah. you said. I mean, yeah, there were wife jokes, there were striking. relationship right. jokes, yeah. and yet uh, it was in a funnier light. Yeah. And we, look, we called Seinfeld old-fashioned, but Mulaney followed the same construct. Yes. So, so that's what was striking. It just it was a thousand times funnier. Yes. Uh, okay, so you saw uh, a headline uh, in the Wall Street Journal that, this week. That struck that, home. Exactly. Okay. It made you sit up right. In fact, it was uh, really the whole front page yeah. of the off-duty section, and uh, it was proclaiming uh, that suddenly it's the art, it's the summer of the RV. The recreational vehicle. Right. Um, this is hard and, to imagine. But well, yes. well, we just, uh, so, I mean, that... Maybe that seems obvious to everybody. Not to me, okay. but no. But uh, this is not news to my family. Yes, I my know brother that. Steed and his wife Sherry have been RV aficionados uh, for many, many years, right. and they feel it is the way to travel. And it's bizarre. And it's you're always, uh, you know, you have good food, right. uh, you uh, have good and safe and clean accommodations. Right. Um, if, you know, Steve and Jerry come to visit us, they don't even stay in our house. They stay in right. the RV. It, it, and uh, we've always found this curious because it seems to us 
Like, uh, wow, that's a lot of work to take a whole house everywhere you yeah, go. Yeah, what could make more sense than the driving around, lugging your hotel room with you wherever you go? Right, like, and yet, yeah. and yet, the RVs are having their moments. Well, of course, because people are spooked about going into motels and uh, with COVID nineteen, well, yeah. any, anything like that, and right. uh, instead they just want to go into the RV that they brought with them. And, and, and plus, you can travel; you don't have to worry about whether restaurants are open or whatever right. at, at this particular food. time. So, the, and it's interesting what uh, the Times uh, said—not uh, the Times, the uh, Wall Street Journal—said about RVs. RV travel in the U.S. is about forty percent international customers. Right. So RVs were having a bang up year, and then international uh, rentals go down, went down completely, and then U.S. rentals started to pick up because people are saying, "I want to go. I don't want to go on a plane. Um, I don't want to stay in a hotel." And this opens up all kinds of uh, horizons. And uh, so they talked about boondocking. Do you know what boondocking is? No. Boondocking is where you park the RV not in a park. Oh, yeah. That you pull over to the side of the road right. or in the Walmart parking lot or, yeah. you know, just... Uh, and so there was a, a little bit of discussion about how to do that. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of... Sounds creepy. ...fun right. and interesting. But anyway, um, there you have it. Uh, my brother Steed, ahead of his time, yeah, well, that's the, once again... I, I haven't heard that thought expressed for a long, long time. Maybe never. But there you go. you got to take it while you can get it. Uh, speaking of ahead of your time, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal about innovation. And I'm gonna, it's a little hard to unpack this article, but I think it's worth doing. I guess I wouldn't have written it in the way it was written, but there's enough information and it's worth relaying to some degree. Um, and I think the best way to understand this is to understand the distinction that the author makes between invention on the one hand and innovation on the other. And I know you're going to ask me, who is the author of this? So I will look it up immediately. And the author is someone named Matt Ridley. And he, Matt Ridley? Ridley. He explains the difference between innovation and invention this way, but it's critical in understanding the article. There is a, uh, in his story, there is a rabbit uh, and uh, a beaver are sitting there contemplating a massive Hoover Dam. And the beaver says to the rabbit, uh, I didn't build it but it's based on an idea of mine. <laughs> and so the, the beaver in the story is the inventor, but right. the innovation is the Hoover Dam. And so in the invention, the eureka moment, gets you only so far, right? but it doesn't get you that far. And uh, the idea is how do you turn these, these eureka moments, these thoughts, these conceptual advances into innovation and that gets him to his second premise. Ridley's second point is that, in fact, it's harder than ever to do that. He says, as a matter of fact, if you look at uh, society today, there's very little innovation. People talk about innovation like it's happening all the time, but it's not. And he, he tries to demonstrate this in certain industries, but he also explains why. There, there are systemic uh, barriers to innovation, and the two principal ones being directed at preserving the economic order that now exists, keeping the establishment afloat. And they are, number one, um, the nose, well, I should say, keeping establishment afloat, he gives examples of every innovation is met with opposition. So apparently, 
when uh, the umbrella was invented, the handsome cab operators in London opposed the umbrella, <laughs> right? Right, right? When coffee was invented, he's a long quote from King Charles II saying that uh, it, trying to prevent the distribution of coffee as opposed to beer because coffee is going to result in people just sitting all afternoon drinking coffee and talking about politics, which turned out to be pretty prescient at the time, but was considered a bad thing. And it goes on and on, you know, natural cooling, you know, natural harvest, ice harvesting industry said refrigerators were bad for you. People want to stop innovation. Right. And the way it stopped most effectively uh, to the detriment of society is the regulatory process. He gives the example of the regulatory process that applied to the invention of the pacemaker, a particular pacemaker. It took 14 full months in the U.S. to clear the pacemaker, but that's nothing compared to France where it was 40 months in Italy, 70 months, which tells you something about the economy uh, in Italy. Um, and uh, it, it, the key thing to innovation is that you take the invention, you take the conceptual idea, and you have to experiment with it. He says that there were 50,000 experiments done by Edison in order to in create, to innovate the nickel-iron battery. Uh, he has a quote from Jeff Bezos saying, look, you just have to keep trying things once you have an idea. Being, this is a quote, being wrong might hurt you, but being slow will kill you. If you could increase the number of experiments you try from 100 to 1,000, dramatically increase the number of innovations you produce. And then, of course, this leads to the conclusion that the way to get real innovation is to get these ideas out in the public, not protected by patents, so that everybody can contribute. And then he talks directly about how a vaccine is best uh, developed in just this way. Uh, he has a couple of ideas on how to do that, to give prizes and, uh, as opposed to grants and as opposed to uh, patent <laughs> protection. But it, it, it's quite a stimulating article. Um, and, you know, I think there's a lot to what he's saying. So uh, that's Matt Ridley? Matt Ridley, yes. And what was the title of the article? Oh, I don't know the title of the article. But it just how's somebody going to look it up if they want to read it? Well, I think they've got a better version of it just now. Innovation can't be forced, but it can be quashed. <laughs> That's the article. But you don't have to look it up. You just got a very good summary, <laughs> very detailed summary. Right. Okay, we need the uh, museum update here. We have well, we, the museum update. You have, is, to the, you, know, you have to do the, the museums sound. are still the, ding ding dong. There you go. Um, museums are still closed. Yeah, and of course there are you know many many delightful virtual approximations right. available Thank goodness. on the small screen. So there you have it. You don't seem enthusiastic um, about that. I do, why do I need to be enthusiastic? The yeah. people in the newspaper and the TVs are, are quite enthusiastic. Yeah, they're not you know, if them. I see one more virtual museum or gallery show yeah. uh, advertised, look what you can do! Yeah. Yes, I think we knew that. Um, so that that's nice, you know... Um, it's, but I do hunger for the non-virtual, the actual. But anyway, and on that note, uh, some of these uh, big shows that people have worked forever to put together uh, are closing or have closed without anybody seeing oh, them. And uh, in some cases, you can't, you know, um, you can't just hold it over and restart it whenever the museums restart. So that's too bad. Among those um, is the big Ghent Altarpiece exhibition, the Jan van Eyck exhibition. Which we've seen. In Ghent. Well, well, this was, remember, they took out the, the individual parts mm -hmm. 
and they're in the museum mm-hmm. so that you can see them. Remember, it was behind glass yeah, right. and it was up high and you couldn't really get a close look. Yeah, that was the So point. they moved it to right. the, the museum so that you could really get a fantastic close-up experience of these. Also, there were a number of uh, other paintings by Van Eyck, um, portraits that have never been together ever and probably never will be. It's really a once-in-a-lifetime. In fact, so this the, was going to be in Ghent? Or what was this going to be? It, it was in Ghent. It opened in February and closed in March. I will just say this. Ghent is like this godforsaken small place. It's like... Uh, you know, why, what do you mean godforsaken? It's a perfectly normal perfectly city. Perfectly normal city, in, but it's like you walk in, you say, uh, the Ghent altarpiece, they, they, people ask around. They say, oh, we got that over here? Yeah, it's, it's in that building over anyway, there. Anyway, yeah. th- this, uh, this group of works yeah. will uh, never be together again. Okay. Um, it's just, uh, um, how does the uh, curator say it? This wasn't just once in a lifetime. Once in a lifetime, it was a once thing. <laughs> so that's a loss. They also mentioned that uh, there's an exhibition uh, of uh, Cezanne's work at the Princeton Museum. Really? That's quite worth seeing. They and they're, the they're trying Museum to in extend. The paper? Yeah, they're wow. trying to extend that, but you know there are negotiations going on. That that whole. Um, Exhibition is on loan from a different You know, I think museum. they were advertising that at the train station when, when we were taking the train. Well, I'm sure they were. But uh, so that's, uh, and you know, and they go on to mention some other things. So that's, uh, you know, some real losses there. The idea that um, Ghent and Princeton were mentioned in the same articles is something. <laughs> <laughs> it is something. Yeah. It is something. Okay. Um, but you had another article about the... You know, my class at the, this very moment yeah. is having a big Zoom call. Is that right? Without you? Yes. And what they do is they line up uh, speakers. Oh, your class, the class of... At the class, class of 76. Oh, oh I, I, okay. I thought yeah. you meant your... Uh, my your, school class? Yeah. No, 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 no. no. Yeah. My Princeton class. You okay. were so who's talking the, about who's, Princeton. Who's, who's, you're going to tell me who the speaker is? Is that where this is going? Um, I didn't memorize all the speakers, okay. uh, but uh, the, you know they have some experts on disease. Oh, uh, great. So, and, and you can ask questions. Oh, better. But guess what? Steve what? Bogardis yeah. is going to sing a few numbers. Oh, my goodness. I guess to cheer us all up. Oh, I'm sure. And then they, then they uh, break up into breakout rooms. Yeah. And uh, you can, yeah, and you can chat with other people. They have questions, mm-hmm. like who was your favorite professor or something. Oh, this and, is, this uh, sounds, this is reminding um, me of just how so fascinating. So this is Princeton what I'm missing, was. yeah, because I'm here with you. Yeah. Um, who was your favorite professor at Princeton? You're welcome. I was going to say, who's my favorite professor? Yeah. And you're putting me on the spot. Yeah, I like Walter Kaufman, but I I, I was going to say Walter Kaufman. Okay, well, well, you took the course but after I took the course, but but, but I don't know. He was, you know, he was good, but it was not like I had a close relationship with him. Although no, I knew him a little better no, than you neither did. Neither did yeah. I. I just adored well, him. Say, I just he adored him. Philosophy professor. He taught a course called Hegel, Nietzsche, and Existentialism, which was extremely popular, notwithstanding that it was taught on Fridays at eight o'clock in the morning, uh, and I was in his precept. Too. So he I was guess. marvelous yeah. and um, so intelligent and so gentle and yes. dear. Oh, yeah. And uh, I just loved him. And um, it's interesting to me. That's our Venn diagram, isn't it? Why? Like, because you're an economics, yeah. you know, uh, math guy. Yeah. And here I am, art history, you know, humanities. And, and, we meet and the, the one course 
we can't have taken any, any no, more than one so. course right. um, in the same course. There we go. Yeah, that's interesting. Anyway, um, and then another uh, another actually interesting article in the fine arts world in the New York Times on Friday was about Fanny Perrier. And I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that correctly, but uh, she has an interesting job. Yeah. She puts together the paintings, yeah. the art collections for the fictional people in movies. So, so the stuff on the walls. The stuff on the walls. In the movies. So there'll be, she's the art producer. Ah, okay. And so the, you know, there'll be a scenic designer, but she's got to choose something that, you know, works right. at that moment. And they, they start out describing that there's this new series, Mrs. America. Yeah. Okay. And it has characters like... It's the one about like, Phyllis Schlafly. Yeah, but there's also Gloria Steinem and Bella Abzug, and they're at some event in the Guggenheim. They filmed in the Guggenheim. Right. So she was delighted because they get to act, have actual paintings, and she had to research it to make sure that the paintings, they didn't have a special, they didn't hang special paintings in the Guggenheim for Good. this show, okay? <laughs> but she had to make sure that whatever they were, you know, showing yeah. was appropriate, that it hadn't been created after 1972, well, that would be a, a, a which is when, thing. okay. Yeah. So that's so she was delighted because it's originals. Yeah. But what they often have to do is um, take photographs or get images of actual paintings yeah. and reproduce them. If it's a watercolor, they print it out on paper. If it's a painting uh, on canvas, they print it out on canvas, and uh, then and they have to get they get permission yeah. to use that painting oh, or group of paintings. You know, then when it's over. Yeah. Production is over. They have to send proof of destruction so that these excellent reproductions are not being sold to somebody right. as the real thing. Mm -hmm. And she said, you know, it's just, in some cases, they used to create um, original paintings, like they'd want a de Kooning-esque painting. And she said that really was kind of a hassle and pretty expensive. It's much easier to just uh, give credit uh -huh. um, you know, get permission to use the reel. So anyway, it sounds um, like a pretty interesting job. Uh, and she has 57,000 photos oh God. that she's taken of paintings and uh, artwork on her phone. You know, uh, so she does some research, baby. You may recall, most part in the jungle did a scene uh, at the Guggenheim uh, with Bernadette Peters in one of the last episodes mm -hmm. we saw. But if I recall, no paintings behind her. And it was clearly the Guggenheim. You remember? The oh yeah, 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 yeah. They were walking around. Yeah. They were offering her the job at right, the Guggenheim to be the head yeah. of the Guggenheim. But I don't think they put any paintings in it because they didn't know about this woman. Okay, so um, the next segments are about iconic figures. You know, we have three iconic figures coming up, and the first one is, in my mind, the most iconic, and that's of course is that that's Willie Mays. So uh, Willie Mays is just in the news because it was his 89th birthday a few weeks ago, and the. Times decided to write an article about him saying that Willie Mays is kind of uh, lost without baseball. He likes to attend baseball. Even at the age of 89, he's got a lot to say. It was fine. It was a, you know, middling article. Okay. But uh, there was something in it that struck me. Uh, so we have two Willie Mays stories. Very quick. The first one is the, is the reference in the Times. This is real inside baseball. Only my brothers will get this. Maybe a couple other people. But this startled me. It startled my... my uh, my little 10-year-old mind was blown by this. In the 1962 World Series, I'm just going to say it fast, the critical moment, one of the critical moments in any World Series. Can I just say? Yeah. 
You weren't 10 in 1962. I was 8. Okay. Well, the critical mind, let me just say, you and Jerry Seinfeld are pretty much born the exact same day, just so you know. So, uh, <laughs> critical moments in 1962, seventh game World Series, the deciding game. Yankees are up one nothing. ninth inning. This is one of the greatest moments in, in baseball history. The Giants are struggling to try to score a run to tie the game or to go ahead and to extend it. There are two outs. There's a man on first. No one, no, no lesser person than Willie Mays is batting with uh, Matty Lou on first. And he hits a double to the right field corner where the right fielder, Roger Maris, has to field the ball. Uh, the runner on first, Matty Lou stops at third. Mays at second. That leads to Willie McCovey batting next. And he famously hits a line drive to Bobby Richardson who catches it and the game is over. What really, what it always struck me at the time, at the age of eight, and I think about this at least once every year, why didn't Matty Alou score on Willie May's double? <laughs> <laughs> once a year? Now, once a year. This comes up to me. I say, geez, it's in the corner. There's two outs. You got to try to score on that. But no one has ever, ever, ever in my mind ever expressed the thought that it should have happened. So I figured somehow it wasn't close. Okay. Willie Mays in this article, just two days ago, says, quote, if it had been me, they would have had to throw me out coming home. He's saying Matty Alou should have scored. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Well, that's I want to get that. that. Okay. Well, is okay. this the same Alou like Jesus Alou? One of the Alou brothers, Matty, okay. Jesus, and Philippe. Oh, okay. Whose son is the manager of the Mets. Right. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. Anyway, that's for a narrow audience. But let me give a broader point about <laughs> Willie Mays, okay? That someone else brought to my attention, and I looked it up a little bit. Here's a great Willie Mays story. Willie Mays is uh, sitting uh, in his home in San Francisco entertaining Don Drysdale. Mm -hmm. Don Drysdale, the great pitcher for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Somehow these two are friends, even though they're bitter rivals on the baseball field. And Don Drysdale says to Willie, gee, you've got great lawn furniture. You've got great lawn furniture. Where did you get it? And Willie says, I got it from Donna Reed. And he says, really? What do you mean? Uh, and what he means is that Willie Mays, a year ago, or just a few months ago, had met a fellow named Tony Owen, who was a producer of television, who it turns out was married to Donna Reed. And he says to Willie Mays, Willie, you're such an iconic figure here. You know, if you ever want to make a few bucks quickly... Just, uh, you should get on Donna's show. Just give Donna a call, and she'll put you in the show, and you'll get paid some cash. And people didn't make as much money in baseball then. So sure enough, Willie Ray Mays, who didn't know Donna Reed from the Donna Reed show, but remembered her from, from here to eternity, okay. calls Donna Reed, and she says, yeah, it would be great. Come on on. And sure enough, he goes on the show. They pay him the cash. He buys the furniture. So he says to Don, Don, if you need lawn furniture, Call Donna Reed. Don, Don Drysdale calls Donna Reed, and then he's on the show. Okay. And he gets the money, and he buys his own lawn furniture. So that was a story for the broader population in All right. 1962. Yes. Just delightful. Okay. God, you have an iconic story, too, I think. Or an uh, iconic no, figure no, no. I don't have iconic stories at all, but uh, I do uh, have an iconic figure, and that would be James Bond. And so in uh, my British history magazine... BBC History. That's you get, as one does. As yes, one reads, as one British does. History okay. Um, they did a whole article on the sort of uh, background of uh, character names, etc., 
in the James Bond novels by Ian Fleming. There were 14 Bond novels. They sold over 100 million copies, resulting in $5 billion uh, uh, box office uh, in the movies as well. And so, folks, number one, which is kind of fun, is that the name James Bond. And I had no idea about this. Uh, maybe some people do, but uh, it was actually uh, based on an American uh, writer, uh, James Bond, of, uh, you know, he's a, a respected American ornithologist. Uh, and uh, maybe I should step back. He no, go ahead. Ian Fleming writes the first book while he's on vacation in the Caribbean. Yeah. And in his house, he has a book. Okay, uh, the guide, uh, Bird, Birds of the West Indies by James Bond, uh, sitting on his shelf, and he chooses that as the right. name because it's simple. It's you know it doesn't uh, you know give away any kind of background. Uh, it's you know it's the perfect name, and so there's a little homage to that in one of the movies, Die Another Day with Pierce Brosnan, hmm. is uh, disguised at a certain point as a bird watcher and he's got the book, the book right in a, his hands and he's kind of right. uh, so James flipping Bond, through named after a birder yes yes well yes. That, that's startling well that is kind of fun yeah and then uh, there were other little details you know a lot of it is about the names the names of uh, several of the oh, yeah, enemies yeah, so, right i thought was fun They're named after like two of them yeah ernst blowfield feld and Francisco Scaramanga. Yeah. You know all these names? Because I, I don't. I, I read the order. Uh, but uh, that actually came from uh, bullies who picked on right. um, um, Ian Fleming's uh, nephew right. in school. And so they but get immortalized. Well, the funny thing is. As uh, bad guys. I mean, Blowfield, talk about sounds like a made-up name. Is uh -huh. that, Blowfield can only be the name of a villain. It's amazing that he borrowed it from somebody. Right. So you wouldn't have a hero named Ernest Blowfield. Right. But even more fun yeah. is uh, the name uh, Goldfinger, right? Yeah. All right. You have uh, Auric Goldfinger. Talk about your villains. And that really seems like a made-up name as well. Right. That's actually based on Ernst Goldfinger, an um, architect uh, right. whose uh, buildings um, Fleming seems to have kind of hated. He didn't like but I, I think that they said was the, the real Goldfinger tried to bring a lawsuit to get him to stop using the Does name. To halt the pu publication, yeah. Which is unbelievable. Yeah, well, he's a little pissed <laughs> off. Um, and then there's, um, I mean, there's, you know, other little things like, well, well, you know, where does the name M well, come you know what from? The crazy thing about from his mother. The crazy thing, well, it turns out they have this theory and that theory about him. They mentioned four characters, all the people in his life. Yeah. All of them, frankly, were nicknamed M. Right. It seems to be his life was dominated from people whose nickname was M. So it had to be in there. But here, this is what I like. I want to read this paragraph because it talks about um, Bond himself. The great spy writer, John le Carré, described Bond as the ultimate prostitute in the sense that his appeal was rooted in the readers never knowing too much about him and instead being able to project their own fantasies and desires onto him until they feel as if on one level they are him. Okay, This might explain why there is always such a heated debate about which actor should play the next Bond, 
we need it to be someone in whom we can see a part of ourselves, which is a testament, ultimately, the writer says, to Fleming's achievement as a writer. Well, it's it's true of a lot of fiction, and, uh, you know, I, like everyone else, identify with Sean Connery's. Yeah, yeah. So, and that's probably, yeah, the success of the books and the movies uh, really relies in our ability to see ourselves in that role, which is fantastic. And and they talk a little bit about, uh, you know, Q and all the gadgets and uh, the department. Well, but they're all all rooted and stuff, and he had that experience. Yeah, he he said, everything I write has a precedent in real life. Right, Right. like there's no Q, but there's a Q department that that, that did the kind of things that Q did. Right. Yeah. And he he knew spies. Oh, and also, birdwatcher is kind of slang for spy. Oh, really? During that time in england i got chills with that one we got yeah we got all kinds of yes but not everybody who identifies with long goes to the lengths of buying an aston martin but you know only armand does that so kudos to him uh the and the the third iconic figure michael jordan now you feel i'm sure that you've heard too much about michael jordan i was not really thinking we'd be talking about him at this point the third uh the third third iconic figure well he made we're having like a zillion well, iconic figures, those are the right? three iconic figures, honestly. The others are less. Iconic. The others are not yeah. iconic? No. Uh, <laughs> so the next easy. segment is less than iconic That's, figures? You can turn your radio down for the next segment. But uh, So Michael Jordan, apparently his leadership style, uh, based on people viewing The Last Dance, has come under uh, some scrutiny. Why do I say that? Because in the last two days, there was an article in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, each one just writing about uh, Jordan's leadership style, uh, quite apart from his basketball ability. And uh, the Times article, uh, frankly, is uh, just as weak an article as you might expect on a subject like this uh, by a fellow named Noam Shyburn. It's the kind of thing that he uh, interviews a bunch of assistant professors, and they all say, that's not good leadership style. He seems very hard on his teammates, you know, uh, in the modern work environment, what you have to do is you have to be a little more uh, relatable. You have to deal with people in a more positive way. And uh, this would never fly. And uh, this is not good leadership. So that struck me as kind of unimpressive or not uninformative, not particularly thoughtful. Uh, but the Wall Street Journal, they have a guy who writes every week named Sam Walker, who writes something, an article called The Captain Class. He has a book on leadership and is sometimes interesting, sometimes not. But in this particular case, he too writes about Michael Jordan. And he says he has often used Michael Jordan as an example of a bad leadership. Uh, And now that he is, but, and the reason was that uh, he said he was just, he was an impossible person to deal with. He was too demanding to his teammates. He was tyrannical. And he felt he was just acting out. That he was just, you know, he couldn't contain himself. That's not leadership, acting out. And he said, based on his view of the series, he's changed his mind. He's changed his mind completely. He's reversed it. He says two things. Number one, it wasn't enough to have Michael Jordan's leadership. You needed the uh, leadership also of a fellow named Bill Cartwright, who was a center, who was able to relate to the younger players in a way that Jordan could not. But he said Jordan was not acting out. He said what Jordan was doing, and this is clear enough from his views and reviews of, of the show, is that he clearly was adopting a leadership style on purpose. He had determined that the only way, and he he actually quotes uh, Marcus Aurelius about uh, 
I'll give you a quote. The blazing fire makes flame and brightness out of everything that is thrown into it. He was consciously throwing his teammates into the fire, in a sense, in the same competitive fire that he experienced. And it was a conscious decision on his part that came at great personal cost. It's not exactly the way he is, but he felt this is what the team needed to succeed. And he was right. They won six championships. So uh, at least the Wall Street Journal has come around. And uh, I'm with the six championships. I think uh, the leadership style was important. And there's a difference between when you, whether you're, you're reading a uh, company that's making, uh, you know, um, oh, I don't know, uh, organic flour and, you know, or you're treating everybody the same way. And if you're basically on a basketball team and you say to your teammates, I'm doing all these drills 100%. I think everybody ought to do the same drills the same way. Different, different environment. So yeah. I'm, I'm with the Wall Street Journal. I love how you, in the same breath, yeah. Michael Jordan, Marcus Aurelius. Uh, yeah, well. That's, uh, that's that, interesting. I'm not the first to make that comparison, I'm sure. <laughs> Listen, I think the biggest... No, but that, I mean, the context of the leadership is key. Yeah. Uh, not only is it uh, that it's basketball, but, uh, you know... It uh, has to do with uh, the people he's dealing with yeah. and uh, what is, you know, what is motivational. Right. What works for that demographic. And But, but what's interesting is he said, look, this is not a guy, it's not just him saying, I can't control myself, sorry, or not sorry. He said he actually adopted this style. He thought about it, and he decided this is what was necessary to have a winning basketball team, which is interesting. Yeah. And well, quite it, apart from his, his physical ability. Right. Yeah. Okay, we're done with iconic figures. Uh, you had, uh, we have a few you know, I can't really say that because, <laughs> you know, I have a very interesting woman here, an obituary in uh, the New York Times, and it's from that section often you know, overlooked. Yeah. Uh, and, it, you know, bringing back the stories of people who didn't appear in the big uh, New York Times obituary section and that's June Almeida and uh, she was actually born in Scotland she worked in Canada she came back to London um, but the main thing is uh, she was a scientist who in 1966 identified the first coronavirus known to cause human disease and uh, what's interesting about her is she became an expert at using the electron microscope and uh, she could sort through um, I don't know what you call it slides or images or you know samples and uh, you know uh, detect these viruses and get images in a way that no one else could and it took attention to detail not just with the eyes but preparing the materials everything had to be exactly right also persistence mm -hmm. and uh, she really excelled at this and uh, you know um, it, it's just kind of amazing to me and fascinating um, that uh, she was able to uh, you know uh, create these uh, images uh, right she mastered this technique and she developed the technique and she was doing things with the electron electronic microscope that other people just couldn't do and she became the resource that everyone went to in terms of identifying, trying to identify things, including viruses, as the years went on. So, yeah, it is kind of special. So key to everything that's going on now. And, uh, again, it's one of those situations where uh, she just kind of uh, lucked into it yeah. and uh, really... Well, she found her niche, as you like yeah, to say. Yeah. It wasn't lampshades. 
But uh, all right. I, After I, she retired, she taught yoga, of course. And then she came back to electrode microscopy. So there oh, you go. Is, this, is that a comment on yoga? The I, satisfaction. I, I want to stick yoga? that in. I don't. There's no substitute for electron microscopy. Microscopy, whatever. Using the electron microscope. Oh, okay. here's <laughs> someone who's not an icon, really, but it's just a funny story. Ben Benson. Uh, when you listen to the giant games, as as one does, uh, over the last few years, you would hear ads about Ben Benson's Steakhouse, and the guy would come on with a gravelly voice, and he'd say, I'm Ben Benson, I always have my spoon in the cream spinach, and giving the appearance. Oh, yeah, that guy. That guy. That's yeah. the guy, right? And, uh, you know, it's like a big steakhouse, but it's a big steakhouse run by a real person, and therefore one you should go to. Well, it turns out Ben Benson is an interesting guy with an interesting career. He, uh, and a friend of his, it really was his friend's idea, started TGI Fridays in the mid-60s, because his friend realized that what you needed was a good singles bar in New York, uh, and they really hit it big. That's what TGI Fridays was in the mid-60s, was a singles bar. And then it became a, a huge family, chain. Family-friendly chain, yeah. But it was different then. Uh, they also developed a Smith & Walensky by uh, picking out the names of two suppliers of theirs that they thought went together well, Smith and Walensky. Uh-huh. And that became Smith & Walensky's. And, uh, is that a steakhouse, too? Yeah, huge steakhouse. Okay. They serve more meals at Smith & Walensky than any other restaurant in New York City. Really? Uh, yes. Um, so uh, they did very well there. And then Ben Benson had his own steakhouse. Um, and his deal was that uh, what he brought to it, uh, the partnership, was that they described here. He's a funny, gregarious host. He knew how to manage his staff. He was very good with people who came in. He'd making them all feel special. They talk about him touching the table. Apparently, that's a phrase in the restaurant business. Mm-hmm. We would come by and say hello to everybody in the restaurant. Mm-hmm. And what I found startling this article, but they just slip it in, is that Ben Benson was blind. Uh, and he was blind for a long time. He had to give up driving in his 20s. And uh, his blindness only got worse as he got older. Uh, didn't prevent him from being that kind of host, although he wow. says... Uh, he feels some people were put off because he couldn't make eye contact and he wasn't explaining to people he was blind. Mm-hmm. But somehow it worked. He had a great career. So uh, he happened to pass away at the age of uh, 89. Uh, you had uh, Phyllis, Phyllis George. Phyllis, Phyllis George. George. Older than I thought. Who achieved one level of fame as Miss America in 1971. Four years later, was hired by CBS to join to join the otherwise all male cast of the NFL today. Right. Um, so that's kind of a big swing, isn't it? I yeah. mean, uh, well, first of all, 1971 it was a big deal to be Miss America, wouldn't you say? Yes. Yeah. Bigger, certainly a bigger deal than today. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so uh, she and uh, apparently she did uh, quite well in it. Do you remember her at all? Oh yeah. From yeah. the NFL. Oh yeah. She, she worked with Brett Musburger. She worked with Nick the Greek. And uh, with Irv Cross, and they would get on. They were. I know you like to watch the uh, the pre shows. Yeah, the I like shows. that kind of stuff. Well, this they invented the pregame show. Oh, okay. So they would sit around. You know, these guys kid around the whole time. Yeah. Well, when you bring Phyllis George on, you're kidding around yeah. because Phyllis George wasn't going to say, "God, look at that hamstring. I don't think it's going to make it through the game." That's not what she's doing. <laughs> okay. There, Nick Creek is saying, "I see him as a three point underdog, and I and I would take the over." And then Phyllis George is saying. Uh, what he's this fellow seems interesting. What's the story with that? And not to say she wasn't smart. She, no, she was. She was. She, but, but she wasn't uh, a football aficionado. No, but she knew enough to yeah. have a conversation. She oh, says yeah. that's from growing up in Texas. Yeah, because football is so important there. Yeah, sure. Right. Um, anyway, 
So, uh, and then, you know, she had several husbands. She was uh, actually... She was married to the guy who owned Kentucky Fried Chicken. Right. And uh, wasn't she the first lady? Wasn't she Same guy. Same guy. He was the governor of uh, Kentucky. Yeah. Um, So she she played a lot of roles in uh, her life. Um, And, uh, but my favorite line from this uh, obit was... uh, it says here, Ms. George was best known for her interviews with athletes. A noteworthy moment happened in 1975 when Roger Staubach, the Dallas Cowboys stoic quarterback, unexpectedly confessed to her, I like sex as much as Joe Namath. I just like it with one person, my wife. Hmm. That's a lot to unpack there. Yes. But uh, I don't know how Roger knows uh, how much uh, Joe Namath likes sex, but it, apparently uh, he I had an insight into that. I think these football players, they, they, all know, yeah, they, they talk. know, they know they each They talk. Other. Well, yeah. good. Good for him. All right. So the final story is just an odd duck story. I mean, the, the Times once in a while writes about uh, an event that took place from the archives, as they say. In this case, May 10th, exact anniversary 10 years ago, 2010. And there was a perfect game thrown by Dallas Braden of the Oakland Athletics then. What was interesting about Dallas Braden was he wasn't a very good pitcher. Perfect game, as you know, Tamsin, is you retire every batter. 27 up, 27 down. There have been only a limited number in the history of baseball, uh, like, you know, 15 or 20 in the history of baseball. Uh, It's a huge deal. Um, And usually it's done by a very good pitcher. Uh, Yeah, his was the 19th in the history of baseball. Um, His record in his career was 26 and 36, his whole career. He lost more than he won. He was 18 and 23 at the time he threw the perfect game. What's interesting about this is that just the week before, he had had uh, a dust-up with none other than Alex Rodriguez. One Alex Rodriguez, everybody's favorite guy. Yeah. Uh, Ten years ago. And apparently what came about was that he was pitching a game and uh, Alex Rodriguez committed what was described by some as uh, breaking an unwritten rule. Uh, follow, after he was running the bases following a foul ball, he went back to first base by crossing the pitching mound, the pitcher's mound. Apparently, you're not supposed to do that. The real ball players know that. So Braden called him out, and A-Rod's remark, response was, Who is this guy? He hardly has won any games. And Braden responded, I didn't know I had to get permission to criticize uh, Alex Rodriguez. I didn't know he had to be a member of a special club. I thought I was a Major League <laughs> Baseball player, and uh, I was allowed to do that. Uh, he, he called uh, Rodriguez uh, A-Rod an individualistic player, and he's not a fan of his antics. So he's pitching this game just his next start against the Tampa Bay team, and he pitches a perfect game. Now, this is poignant because in, in – oh, I should, I should say one other thing. What Braden said about the A-Rod incident, that he, he would knock his grandmother down if she crossed the pitcher's <laughs> mound, right? So he pitches this, this, this perfect game a week later, and who's in the stands but his grandmother, <laughs> right? His grandmother, which is kind of poignant because his mother actually had passed away when he was a high school senior, and he was raised from then from his grandmother. Well, of course, after the game, the reporters... Uh, interview the grandmother and what did she say to her? the first thing she said to the uh, reporters she said stick it a rod <laughs> <laughs> so there you go not right. loved by everybody thank you granny yes all right so uh until next week yeah this is tamson granger and dan abuha with tamson and dan read the paper see you next week absolutely